0: In Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry for the Future, the Paris Climate Agreement and subsequent climate treaties play a large role in realizing a sustainable future for humanity. The work being done at COP26 can either play a role in bringing that story to life or it could portend an even darker future for humanity. On today's show, we talk with Kim Stanley Robinson and get a glimpse into what it might take to survive and transcend the climate crisis. Burning Desire. Big Ideas. Bold Action. Ken Stanley Robinson is a Hugo and Nebula-winning author of the Mars Trilogy. He's known as a realistic, science-based, highly literary science fiction author with over 20 books published. Stan's works often focus on themes of sustainability, economic and social justice, climate change, and speculative futures. Stan is a world builder creative In his 2020 novel, The Ministry of the Future, Stanley takes on our near future and builds a world-spanning vision of how we will be impacted by climate, economic inequality, and social justice crises. In his book, he sketches out a path forward for humanity. This book is a must read for anyone interested in generative futures, and in my opinion, one of the best ever examples of a generative future, one that is both desirable and viable. Stan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you. Um, uh, I,
0: I'm, I'm curious about all kinds of things about this uh, work, but the first thing that, that I'm most curious about is, you know, what was your inspiration? What was that kind of seed moment when you, when you decided, I've got to write a book about this, uh, about this
1: near-term issue? There wasn't really, um, well, maybe there was, but it, be, it was the end of a long process. Um, I've been writing utopian novels for about 30 years, several, and that's not typical for someone to do serial utopian novels, but they were always distanced from the here and now set on Mars or in the past, uh, various displacements that meant that I kept trying to not just write about a utopia, but about how we might get to a better society, like the road to utopia as being the subject of the novel. So that's been going on for years, and I've been struggling with it for years. For this book, I thought, let's um, dispense with all displacements and go right to the global present, to climate change. No distractions, no metaphors. And then what you might call, what you, when you talked about a seed moment, I was reading about wet bulb 35 temperatures. Mm-hmm. I was coming to understand that this talk that was widespread in our culture, that um, we weren't going to be able to stop the global average temperature uh, rise at 2 degrees Celsius. We were going to shoot up to 3 or 3.5 or 4, and we were just going to have to adapt to that, that humans were adaptable. This was a view that you would hear from people trained in economics or in the humanities, et cetera, And they were missing something that hadn't really been underlined by the medical or scientific community that humans can't survive uh, above a wet bulb 35 temperature. And I was reading about that. It's a heat index. It's what we all understand very well, that a combination of high heat and high humidity is more uncomfortable than a dry heat. And that at a certain combination of high heat and high humidity that the world is now beginning to touch on for an hour or two here or there around the world in. Um, thermometers and weather stations is fatal to human beings unless they're in air conditioning. You get cooked in your own juices, sweat, sweating doesn't work. Um, hyperthermia is just as dangerous as hypothermia, and within hours you overcook and die um, because sweating doesn't work in high humidity. So when I read that, it was like a slap to the face. I was thinking, look, all these um, eco-modernists, all these philosophers and economists saying we just have to adapt. They're not understanding that in an evolutionary sense, we can't adapt, that we would have to be living in air conditioning, and air conditioning breaks down. Um, all of uh, electrical grids break down, especially when they're stressed by high demand. So precisely when we'd be at the most danger of um, dying of heat strokes, we also might have uh, electrical grid failures. And that was the stimulus. I thought we are in more of an emergency than we even thought we were. And the whole adaptationist, eco modernist, we'll just adapt to anything view is flatly wrong. And I need to write a book about that. So that was the start. Yeah.
0: And in the book, you you describe um, in a very dramatic sense, tell the story of one of these events happening in India and uh, all but one uh, individual from this town uh, passing away from the heat and even getting in the lake wouldn't save them from uh, the terrible heat over over the, the period of time they were exposed to it. And then this starts off a whole series of, of impacts inside of the, the, the book uh, that we'll go into a little bit later. Tell me a little bit about, in this book, there were... There were it's in it's in chapters or sections, um, but there are there are pieces in the book that are just straight up essays trying to help us understand economics and and other topics. That's not a uh, it's certainly not a typical writing style for a science fiction writer. I mean, science fiction tends to, to come in a pretty traditional packages. Um, tell me how you decided to do that. And and, you know, what is what's the experience you've had of the audience reaction to, to that kind of, of essay writing inside of the book?
1: Well, it's been all over the map. Um, And there is always a crowd of people who think they know how novels work and that novels can only be dramatized scenes, you know, 20 dramatized scenes and you have your novel and they're very rigid. But I'm not that way. Um, I'm an English major. The canon shows you that the novel as a form is very capacious. Hmm. It's a baggy form. It isn't even a genre. It's called novel because it's new. And a whole lot of material can be tossed into a novel, and it still function as a novel. So I'm a novelist. I believe in the novel, and I could point to some quite famous novels that use um, interpolated essays, plays, um, uh, pseudo documents, lists, et cetera, et cetera. The one that I would point to because I've used it before is John Dos Passos's U.S.A. trilogy a very famous book from the 30s that describes the 1920s globally better than any other novel. And it was very famous in its time. And it's still, it's marginal in the canon because Dos Passos was an intense left-winger when he wrote the book. And when he was young, he was an intense right-winger when he got older. And right when English departments in the 50s were trending left, he was trending right. He's never really been uh, taught but he has been read so if you look at the usa trilogy you'll see the model for my earlier novel 2312 a specific uh homage to dos passos's form and um <clears throat> you know it's never really wise to um refer to this book for multiple reasons but uh i'm going to do it anyway moby dick one of the greatest of all novels in the history of the world is simply stuffed with various kinds of forms, including these pseudo essays. You have to regard them when they're in a novel as a chapter in which the protagonist is something, not a human, but an idea. You have to regard them as prose poems. They aren't gonna function like ordinary essays. They're under the service of the novel's larger purposes. They're there to be games. They might be wrong. Melville has a long chapter on the qualities of whiteness or the the whale regarded as a fish. He keeps calling it a fish, goes on and on like that. So what's important when you have a novel is that all forms can fit in it and they're orchestrated to a larger cause. In this case, a global picture of like the next 30 years. I mean, in essence, by certain criteria, that's a crazy goal for a novel. Mm. But since the novel can do anything, and since I've already written novels that cover 700 years or 200 years covering 30 years was not um too mind-boggling it's always problematic and i'm interested in the game of forms so say you're talking about climate change you start with a mass heat death it's pretty grim material it's real life it's the crisis that we're in now it's an emergency and we all know about it we're all living it why read a novel i mean a novels are for fun where's the fun And for me, some of the fun can be in the orchestration of the material in the form of games, in the form of different kinds of genres. In this book, much more important than the essays are the eyewitness accounts. Um, probably, I don't know, two or three dozen eyewitness accounts by anonymous narrators who tell you something they saw in first person. Well, now, that's not novelistic. That's An eyewitness account works almost exactly the opposite of the novel in that it it tells rather than shows, and novels are supposedly about showing, not telling. I actually don't believe in any of the rules when it comes to novels. I don't think there are rules. You put together a big, baggy prose narrative, you make it work or you don't, but there aren't rules. So our culture's notion is very puritanical and uh, and um, rigid—that they people seem to think they know what a novel is—is is, uh, oh, well, it's irritating to me because I I myself am a novelist and I don't know what the novel is, but I know it's bigger than what they were thinking about. Yeah,
0: and it and it, it seems to me that you're daring to educate in the middle of this book. I mean, it, and I don't want to get into this. It's that the book is. It it is at times fun to read, but it's not fun to read in the way that a lot of your other work is, or work that's you know displaced in time or, or location. It's a it's a it's a, um, a it vi- has a visceral impact because of its its nearness and its um and the likelihood of some of the the crisis events in it. So uh, it, I think there's a you it's it's a bit shocking sometimes for people. And then some of the, the pieces of the, you know, essays or even the eyewitnesses, they're, 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 they're daring to educate us, um, about things that maybe aren't widely known or spoken about. Um, I think that takes some courage, one, but I'm, I'm interested in, you know, choosing to do that. And what is the impact or effect that you're, you were hoping the book would have or, or maybe even not even a conscious hope, but this is just something I must put out there. Um, and now as you're standing and you're seeing it making this kind of, Uh, impact into worlds like like our world uh, with the generative futures initiative Um, you know just talk to me about about that a little bit because novel as a way to transform culture and people's view of something is uh quite a revolutionary act if you ask me
1: well thank you for that i i I mean i think that's what the novel was made to do is to create a cultural structure of feeling by um putting everything into it and talking about the meaning of the culture and so it it creates meaning it doesn't it's not just reporting it's creating and when you opened up this our discussion you talked about a future that was both desirable and viable you said and now and, and that's one of the reasons that i pulled in all this wide variety of material Um, I was thinking of it in terms of a best case scenario of the future going well and us dodging the mass extinction event, but in a narrative that you could still believe, in a narrative where you could believe that it could happen, it was crucial not to run off the rails of of believability, of plausibility, of, of the reader going along reading it and testing it at every sentence, like a reality test. Could that happen? Could that happen? Well, everybody reads like that, but in this case, um, the pressure was going to be hard on the novel to say, well, do I still believe it? And there's, um, there's places where I necessarily had to do some uh, hand-waving, where um, it isn't as believable as I would want, where there's a stretch, a leap of faith. Um, in science fiction, um, Norman Spinrad made up this term I find very useful, the strategic opacity. You get to the crux of things and a new science fiction device, a time travel machine or whatever, and there's a strategic opacity right where you would have to explain how it really worked There's uh, some phrases that obscure the fact that you can't really make it work. Well, in political science, in history, anytime you write a future history, you've got moments where you're skating over thin ice, where you've got little strategic opacities. But for the most part, I wanted to make it look like it was rock solid from, from the very near future, like three years from now, to the year 2050, a feeling of solidity that would grow in the reader to where the suspension of disbelief would increase that more leeway would be given as the book established its credentials as, Oh yeah, this is realistic. This is how it would happen. Then, um, w- uh, more risks could be taken without, um, throwing the reader out saying, well, that just couldn't happen. And slowly, but surely you could create a believable, but uh, desirable future. So in that sense, you brought it up and I think it's very important. Um, entertainment versus education, This is a question about art that goes right back to Aristotle, whose definitions of it are fundamental to our Western culture. Um, It essentially art should both educate and entertain at the same time. And they're not that much of a dichotomy. Uh, Brecht is also very good on this in his um, estrangement effect and in his theater uh, theory. Um, Education can be highly entertaining Entertaining entertainment can be highly educational. It's not that much of an either-or if you begin to regard the idea that, hey, new information, that's kind of fun to know that. And therefore, the essays have to be well done. They have to be um, playful. They have to maybe have a snarky or a supercilious or a indignant narrator who it's not just an essay, it's somebody on a rant who's telling somebody about something. Um, And so most of the mini essay chapters in Ministry for the Future have an angle. Um, uh, Some of them sound a lot like my Citizen from my New York 2140 novel, but I didn't want to go back to that uh, cynical, uh, blasphemous uh, citizen of New York—that New Yorker who was squawking so hard in my New York novel—wasn't really appropriate and only appears once or twice as a voice, as a as a style, in Ministry for the Future. I wanted other things, and I I think that by going at it that way, the um a lot of the, the essay chapters, people reading them, they'll really already know that stuff. Anybody who's interested enough to pick up a novel by me, Bake Up Ministry for the Future, there are some first-timers, but a lot of them are already sophisticated, experienced, and educated uh citizens. So when they read my novel, I'm not in many cases, I'm not really teaching so much as I'm rehearsing. And 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 by putting in little bricks of of um uh, of essay-like material, of, of su- supposed nonfiction material, um, although I think of these as short stories also, they're like bricks in a wall. And what they do is create that sense of, oh yeah, this is plausible, this is realistic. I knew that already, but it's entertaining to see Stan's take on it, or this, this narrator's take on it, and it's short. Mm-hmm. So I'm not um, beating people over the head with stuff that they already know. And then maybe sometimes I'm introducing a new angle um uh, maybe because it's a leftist angle maybe because it's the latest thing maybe because it's a scientific angle that is new also to me so i'm like bringing the news and so that's how all those things come together
0: And i think that's what's really effective uh, about the book and uh, you know other than the fact that it takes us on this journey and really takes us through all these steps of of dealing with the effects of the climate crisis. And, and you do deal with social justice and, and economic inequality in there as well. I want to make sure that everybody knows that it's really taking on a, a whole um, a portfolio of issues for humanity, um, and it, it walks us through there. And I think the thing that that gets me to, to uh, tell people to read the novel over and over again is because even if they've not been in this conversation, if they can read the book, they will, they will suddenly be in the conversation. They'll have enough information about different, um, topics and ideas, not just a story there, but they'll actually have some information that, that's actionable for them. Um, things they can go research more on, or maybe they're really fascinated in the economics part or the governance part and they can, they can dig in a bit farther. Um, and in fact, I think one of the most impressive things about the book is how many of those ideas you're able to, to weave into one, um, one work that it is really a a broad spectrum of different, uh, not only different uh, understandings of our current systems as play, but some many, many, many of the kind of theoretical ideas of how we might work our way out of those systems into new systems that might serve better for uh, the planet and humanity's place in it. So uh, chapeau for for, um, doing that. Um, I wanna talk for a minute about economics. Because in the book, you you bring, you know, capitalism and, and it, it, it by the end of the story, it's not it's not capitalism like we would recognize it today. But you bring capitalism along to the future as well as as traditional governance forms. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the decision to do that. Was that the case from the very beginning? You knew you were going to look at, at capital as being a, an important, intrinsic part of this thing. Or did you consider other approaches? Uh, and then ultimately, why did you decide to 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 keep capitalism you know going along for the next 30 years
1: well it, it was a, a question and it's part of this uh, desire <clears throat> it's part of this desire to make it a realistic novel a plausible novel and we are in the nation-state system and we're in a global capitalist system now the global capitalist system is one name for the climate problem it creates the climate problem by mispricing everything. So it needs to be solved, cured, changed. <clears throat> the nation state system, well, it's unwieldy, but it's what we've got. And it's not automatic that it's part of the problem. In other words, if you imagine some world governance in, a, in some science fictional form that that tells everybody what to do, And then everybody does it, and then we're all okay. Well, maybe, but maybe that's not necessary. And it's also incredibly um, uh, one-worldish and cuts against language, culture, diversity, and difference in ways that are, A, they're maybe a little inhuman and unnatural, and B, we don't have got it now, and we're not going to get it. So in terms of making a plausible future, getting to a better place, I needed the nation state system. And then you need international treaties to coordinate nation states and get them all working more or less on the same page, rather than a zero sum game. That's why I focused on the Paris Agreement. Every nation signed it, they've agreed to do certain things. And if they were to stick to their agreement, then the Paris Agreement will become one of the great um, actions in world history. It will be remembered as long as human history is written if we live up to it. If we don't, then it becomes like League of Nations, which is well-remembered amongst people who are thinking of failures, um, but not well-remembered if you're thinking about uh, world history as a success. So th- I'm trying to describe to you my decision-making process as to making a fictional future that was both positive and you could believe in it. Nation-state system, Paris Agreement, but capitalism, okay, that's going to the highest rate of return. The name of the, Capitalism is a name for a system of power it's mm-hmm. a, and a financial arrangement by which the few control the many. And the work of lots of people accrues to the ownership of a few people. And that's intrinsic to capitalism. It's not an accidental side effect. It's not a hijacking of the system. It's intrinsic. I'm an anti-capitalist. I'm an American leftist capitalism is one name for the problem but it's the law it's what we start with so then how do you get out of that how do you morph that into a system that properly prices and um the world people and the biosphere price it properly which is means in many cases infinity so already your system begins to blow up economics doesn't value things because its prices are always artificial and and concocted, but they've been made too low. And then how do you morph that around to um, a better treatment of people, better treatment of planet, where you get more justice, you get more biosphere health. Um, You will have to break that central law of going to the highest rate of return as it currently exists. So that's how I came to, I'm by seeking around, well, who talks about this amongst political economy? Well, it's kind of um, sparse. It's not of uh, active discussion. Despite the crucial need for it, you don't see a lot of speculative economy. And what that would be is political economy, not just economics, but political economy. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think modern monetary theory has to be um, given props as um, a group of economists trying to think back to Keynes, uh, using Keynesianism, to get into a better pricing of the of our relationship to the biosphere. And also what I like about MMT is the insistence on a job guarantee and full employment and justice and people's welfare uh, is included in the climate equation as well. So in other words, you pay yourself for doing the right work and and effectively it's almost just Keynesianism, which um, it sounds that sounds a little bit Uh, timid or old-fashioned. But on the other hand, um, it would be a huge step forward to get from austerity and neoliberalism back to Keynes and then go forward from there. And what I mean by Keynes is government making up new money and spending it for good carbon reduction projects first, and controlling the spend, not just giving it to the private banks who consistently blow it by going to the highest rate of return, which is fictionalized and wrong and bad but actually spending the first creation of new money on, it's called carbon quantitative easing. Yeah. So this is a long way of of, of running you through my thinking uh, process as I actually ended up writing a novel about qu- carbon quantitative easing. I mean, that's, that's crazy unless you explain the, the, the process of thinking yeah. that got me there. I mean, central bankers. I don't know of many novels that are about central bankers changing the world. And it feels foolish to say so, because they are not really the drivers, but they are the clutch. Right. Uh, and so as the clutch, I thought I could play the game there.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, and Keynes, you know, I think going back to, you know, the banker and the Bretton Woods meetings and this kind of decision point for our global economics when we went to, hey, let's just. Take as much and extract as much wealth from everybody we can as the model, f- instead of saying, "Hey, let's intrinsically tie the value of all our economies together," which yes. is Keynes's argument, yes. and um, and in, and then you go a step further and introduce, uh, you know, this this carbon coin. So, you know, looking towards some of the, you know, what emerging tools we might have in in uh, in cryptocurrency and and uh, blockchain driven uh economics which are still nascent i mean many of those people Keynes is like the top level of their thinking you know like going beyond that right now is really difficult mostly because we just don't have any prototypes for how to manage other forms of value other than than the one that's tied to um you know the world's um uh, fiat currencies so I, i definitely again you know hats off to you for for Going that direction and demonstrating there again, giving us a viable picture. And I think over and over, what is helpful for those who would like to uh, seek out systemic change is having examples, even even fiction examples of how this might work and how this might carry out, because it, it creates a blueprint um, uh, for action. Uh, yes. You know, obviously, just a blueprint without any action doesn't create any change. But uh, all action, you know, around around achieving. Uh, uh, nebulous aims. We know where, where those end up. You can, you can take a look at the Occupy movement, for example, great amount of action, no, no aim and no destination. It was, it was, you know, coherently driving towards, and then it, it all falls apart. Um, now in the book, and in, in you, you use a very, very, um, strong lever, to deal with um, the excesses of capital and capitalism in that uh, uh, there is a, an element of eco-terrorism in there and that the, you know, the top 1% or the top climate abusers um, actually are the targets of this very sophisticated terrorism. I, I'm curious about that as both a storytelling device, which I found as a reader, very uh, engaging and in some way, some way gratifying and satisfying, but as a, as a kind of an architect of the future, um, it is, is that it like, is that a, a necessary ingredient or is that like just one way that we might actually have the worst of our, our, um, climate abusers, if you would, if you would call that, or the ones that are at the, the, the most excessive extremes of, of economic inequality to rejoin a, a more, um, wide middle humanity.
1: Well, I mean, you put your finger on one of the more vexing, troubling, and important questions, and I can't answer it um, because the world's going to answer it. Uh, When writing the novel, I was fearful that if we didn't cope with the climate change and also inequality uh, problems as as a combined problem in the properly in the next few years by legal means, by democratic means, by, by agreeing as a society and a civilization to do it that way, violence was gonna erupt. Mm-hmm. And really the kind of uh, targeted asymmetrical and effective violence that is sometimes described in my book is a little uh, fantasy land. Um, typically violence is more spasmodic, more chaotic and less effective in um, its collateral damage and its blowback and its, and its suffering. And in, in other words, it's a bad tool. And so in my novel, um, I was sort of thinking through these issues and I don't think that uh, I did a particularly good job. And one in this sense, probably I could have made it clearer the differences between sabotage and murder mm-hmm. as political tools and that maybe there are reasons for and justifications for sabotage for breaking of of, um, of machinery as opposed to hurting people um, but uh, but my defense yeah. is that history itself is completely chaotic and yeah. so as a representation of what it's going to feel like and what it might look like i think my novel is okay as a blueprint or a plan or a suggestion no i don't think it works that way and i'm 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 frightened that the book it, when you say, you know, architect of the future, that it, it begins to look like a necessary beam um, uh political violence, I keep thinking that say you're in the 1%, you've been well-educated, you and and you're up-to-date in terms of education, you know how the world works. If the democracies of the world gave you a big haircut and progressive taxation came in and also uh trackable digital money came in so that you uh couldn't hide your wealth and that the taxation was going to give you a big haircut and probably your heirs, your immediate heirs in terms of passing along inherited wealth. But even in the immediate present for you, if you were said, look, you only get to keep 10 million and the rest is going to the common good and, and to necessary causes and has become part of the public rather than the private wealth. Um, wouldn't you rationally take the haircut and walk if you were given a sufficiently good deal for protecting your private privilege? Well, if if everybody was homo economicus and the 1% is closer to it than anyone else, maybe they would. They know perfectly well that 10 million is isn't enough to protect um, your life, that you will live a good life, that you will have social security, you'll have health care And your kids will probably be okay to a limited extent. You can never protect them, um, not by money. So, um, and yet, power is a drug and wealth is power. And I don't notice too many of the 1% advocating a really harsh progressive tax rate, advocating their own haircut. You don't see that happen very often. And in a future, and and here I want to move into a fantasy space. If there were a future in which uh, if you were in the 1%, you knew that you had a chance that you were just going to be killed on the street one day, or have a drone blow up your house one day, and you were offered a safer world. And this is almost like parallel worlds fantasies rather than actual world situations. Wouldn't you be feeling calmer, healthier, and, and like a better citizen if you took the haircut? And so this is a political position, taking the haircut. Um, I don't see it. It's, you don't see um, uh, the 1% being uh, radical and progressive leftists. You see them often supporting the status quo, even though the status quo has taken us all down. So these are the kind of questions that come up that yeah. come up to all of us.
0: Or being or anti being anti government, we can look at the the you know the the capitalists behind the Brexit move. You know they really just wanted deregulating, uh, deregulated trade, uh, the capacity to make more money without any kind of oversight. Um, so there's there's definitely a, a common theme. Amongst uh, a libertarian, you know, radical libertarian form of capitalism, which is get your hands off me and let me make the money I want to make, let me operate as I want to. Which is kind of like saying to the great white shark, yeah, we'll just throw as much food in the water as you'd like, um, I, and let you eat. And I think that's that's something that you know, the, it's often been said that that capitalism without strong governance is is toxic. And I think that that what we've seen in the past, you know, twenty five years, uh, and and hopefully. You know, like beginning to be curbed is this notion that government should continue to, to create more opportunity for, um, the, the, uh, accumulation of capital. Um, and I think, I think you're saying about, uh, taking a haircut, you know, that could be moved to a, a more aggressive stance and saying that, hey, governments could, could privatize people's businesses and things like that, which we definitely saw, um, in the socialist revolutions. Obviously something that's very distasteful to most Americans, especially, uh, but, but, Within the, the, the toolkit of a, govern, a government, we, we could actually do things like that.
1: Well, I want to I wanna, um, um, make something clear that I know that you already know, but just so that we are uh, making it clear to all our listeners, yeah. uh, neoliberal capitalism is strong governance. It is a system of governance. Yeah. It is not hands off. It's not this myth of private contracts between individuals that get to make private agreements amongst themselves. It's a set of regulations and laws that allows for monopolies to take place. And and then once they have, the state and finance, government and business, are two aspects of the same system of civilizational controls. And so um, one doesn't wanna get caught up in the idea that capitalism is less government and uh, what would you call it? Socialism is more government. They are both highly government. They are both forms of governance. So what would be interesting would be to apply, apply um, a hugely a a progressive tax basis, but also taxes are so powerful. If you said that a big company gets taxed at five times the rate of a small company, the lawyers, the tax lawyers would go to that big company and say you need now to become um, 10 small companies cooperating with each other. We'll f- fix it behind the scenes, but you are now breaking down into 10 small companies to reduce your tax rate. Well, 10 small companies could then begin to deviate in terms of their own internal governances as city-states. And then you begin to drive towards, with the tax law said cooperatives where the employees owe the company get taxed at 10%, whereas um, um, the old style uh, owner driven, when capital owns the, the profit and the labor, rather than labor owning the capital and the profit, profit being a kind of a weird index anyway, at different tax rates, suddenly we would all become Mondragon. Right. Um, in order to uh, uh, make more money uh, and, and conform within a governance system that taxes differentially to make push towards justice and um, the the rights of a, a the the economic rights of a much larger group of people, I guess what I'm saying here is the instrumentation already exists called rule of law, legislation, tax law, regulation. That instrumentation exists and can be applied to make a much flatter, uh, more biosphere-friendly, more just, socially just um, political economy. The tools could be applied in ways that make for a much better system.
0: Yeah. Uh, again, you, you know, I think that you made this case in the book quite well that um, governance or, or laws and agreements between governance, governments, uh, treaties could be used to great effect to to uh, um, take us off the course of, of, you know, climate extinction and put us on the course to to, of course, correction as best we can, although the book makes it very clear that it's not going to be a, a comfortable journey regardless of, of whether we do well to work our way out of it. Um, and it seems to me that um, just recently, over the past year or two, we've seen some examples, uh, I'm thinking specifically in Europe, some of the, the uh, there's a new law that, that says that any part of a supply chain has to be responsible for the fact that there uh, wouldn't be uh, slave labor, for example, in uh, any part of that supply chain. It used to be that, hey, as long as the people that are supplying me the genes say they're not using slave, slave labor, I'm I'm off the hook. Or Europe is now saying, no, you're on the hook. You actually need to um, ensure that no place in your supply chain would have that kind of, of labor. And so we're starting to see some moves like that. And it, and it seems to be nascent in terms of the kinds of, of, of uh, governance changes that, that you're speaking about in the book. But do you see kind of some hope and I know you you based your book in Switzerland and in and, and in the European world. Do you see some hope in that in that part of the the world for leadership in this regard? Um, what is what is
1: our way out? Well, I I see some hope, and and I've seen more since I finished the book, as people come mm-hmm. to me and say, "Stan, why were you so pessimistic, or why were you talking about these good things happening in the 2030s or 2040s when actually they're already started." Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been educated in ways that I would love to retroject into the novel, but I can't Um, on the other hand, there's always uh resistance opposition the the attempt by people in power to stay in power and No matter the costs. So it's a mixed picture, but uh, um, the one of the things you're you're talking about is legal standing um, that all people need to have legal standing, such that indeed slave economic labor, the equivalent of slave labor, or, uh, wage slavery, or enforced labor, etc., cetera, that you still see around the world, be, it gets made uh, illegally uh, to the whole supply chain, as you talked about. This is great. Then also the rights of non-speaking uh, entities like, animals like watersheds like rivers like um biospheres um the the problem is you bring a court a case to court does the claimant have standing so legal standing is a crucial matter in in our uh, rule of law system and it's been historically expanding over time from a very small group of privileged men to um, more and more people, and then to these other entities. So like I did an event with the Minister for the Future of the country of Wales. Jane Davidson got laws passed such that the land of Wales has legal standing in the courts of Wales, and all decisions made for the political economy in Wales need to take into account its effect on the landscape. That might spread to the whole UK. You, You spoke of these examples in Europe. And um, all the talk of, of 30 by 30, that 30% of the land be reserved for the animals by the year 2030, this movement is, is growing fast and it's new. And it, and it actually quite uh, surprises me that it's doing so well so fast because it sounded radical just 15 years ago when I first ran into it. And now it's um, a platform it'll have to be struggled for and and made real but the fact that these are actually on the table now amongst uh places like european union the united states uh, federal government uh and in weird ways and and ways that are obviously problematical but also they're happening in china and in india a uh, very contested worldwide and and it's a nasty moment in world history because the reactionary business as usual let capital exploit us to death There are advocates of that that are going to go down fighting. They won't change their minds. You can't talk them out of it. Um, Unfortunately, persuasion and reason only go so far. I would like it if the discursive battle were the only battle. But in fact, the discursive battle is just one aspect of a larger political and physical battle that we're in.
0: Yeah, this notion of rewilding and, and in a book, you did just some amazing, uh, you make some, made some amazing leaps of imagining very, uh, uh, very large um, um uh, corridors for wildlife to to travel and move, and California, big pieces of the Central Valley being turned over to to rewilding. Um, do, you know, is is that one of those essential ingredients? Is it is it not just that we have to stop uh, extracting you know resources that that have toxicity when we extract them and toxicity when we when we use them, but this notion of turning over parts of the planet back to um, to truly wild environments, not managed wild, but but. But really left alone, is that is that one of those those kind of key components of us moving through the next thirty to fifty years?
1: Well, that's a good question too. Uh, I want to say yes, but I think that it is um, a question of your value system. The citizenry that you are hoping to achieve adequacy for—do those citizens include the wild animals or not? Mm-hmm. So, if you're anthropocentric and it's all about humans only. I suppose there's a future you could imagine where we have a mass extinction event and yet we still have adequacy for humans for a few centuries. Um, But I'm going to say that these are fellow citizens. They have moral standing, but also they're part of our bodies. Hmm. They are extensions of our bodies. And that if we that dodging to me, dodging the mass extinction event is a critical component of it morally and perhaps practically in the sense of our body's biosphere function that we'll be sick if we go through a mass extinction event in ways that will ultimately be killing us and also we can never get back from. Extinction is indeed final. And you can't de-extinct. And a mass extinction event would be a a moral and practical failure. So the the habitat corridors are crucial for dodging the mass extinction event. That helps in the climate crisis, perhaps a little indirectly. It helps in human justice, perhaps a little indirectly. But if you want to take the argument to its largest scale, holistically, as as a biosphere and a question of biosphere health, then... Um, Diverse biological diversity is easily as important as human cultural diversity I'm going to I'm going to state that as a as a axiom that isn't proven that needs discussion Uh, but but uh for me it seems uh, important and evident but I I don't think it's uh, obvious I think a lot of people they've seldom seen a wild animal in their lives and maybe it's a seagull or a crow or a coyote. Um, these are wild animals too, or deer, you know, since we killed the predators, deers are pretty much everywhere. You see them occasionally, but comprehending the, the, the web, the weave of, of life on this planet, that's almost a kind of a religious moment of understanding. And I, I tried to talk a little bit about the Gaia religion, the earth religion, one planet religion in my book, but it's a much more technocratic. I have other novels that are more religious than Ministry for the Future, which is more of a technocratic approach to things. But I think it takes almost a religious comprehension of the biosphere as our body. Uh, I, and it's easy to say Mother Gaia. Um, mother is a, is a good analogy, but it's not quite right. It's more than that, it's our body. So so these things need to be brought into play and they need to become part of the political economy, too. We have to pay ourselves as humans to take care of, in a steward way, the rest of the biosphere.
0: Yeah, I think that, that fundamental dualism between human and, and animal worlds, uh, that that kind of mistaken view of separation... Uh, which plagues us in our, all of our, uh, you know, spiritual pursuits as well, you know, individual human ego versus, uh, you know, collective unity experience of, of, of consciousness or being is, is, you know, one of the, if you would say the, the universally seen crux issue for human beings. And likewise, inside of understanding ourselves as part of a, uh, a, a planet wide ecosystem, it's very difficult to, um, talk to human beings about like, well, you could have less so the animals could have more because it, it traffics in the same dualism that, that got us in trouble in the first place. More seeming that, uh, you know, you're creating a place for your relatives, for your children, for your, you know, for the the other um, parts of the body, as you said. And I do think that's a good, I hadn't really thought about it before. When you just said mother guy inside of that, actually mother said, now there's separation. You know, the child is born from the mother and then separates from other. And so we don't really want the mother as at least the Western archetype of, of the mother there either, we need to understand from cradle to grave that we are part of an, an ecosystem. We are, you know, breathing in, you know, bacteria and, and, and viruses, which we are very familiar with this, this, in this uh, calendar year. And, and that, that, that is a, Ongoing process, you know, even the the fact that every one of our cells is replaced within a seven year period. What did it get What does it get replaced with? It's not like I'm in the background at night manufacturing cells for my next body. It's a It's a part of my participation in the environment and ecosystem. And it seems to me one of the fundamental um, illnesses for modern, uh, especially modern Western um, uh, humankind, is this. Um, ignorance of that, this unknowingness of our place inside of the whole system. And the last thing I want to say before I turn this back to you is that mass extinction events have happened, you know, five or maybe six times in the past, depending on how you count. And every time the number of species declines incredibly and and the, 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 the planetary environment goes into this churn, most things don't make it through the churn. Yeah. which means if we have one more than likely we're not going to be one of the things that make it through the churn we're not going to be one of the ones that uh, and if we were we wouldn't be what what came out the other side of that wouldn't be us it would be something significantly different yeah. and so there again to to say that there is no there's no success for humans without success for the whole biosphere and 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 that also by extension consciousness in general uh is is counting on us figuring some of these things out. Um, are there any other, I mean, we've talked about economics and now about, about um, biology, uh, ecosystems. Are there any other like basic minimums that we have got to get working on now uh, to, to, to have this desirable or viable future? And, and we'd like to talk about a thriving, a possibility of a thriving future for human beings on the planet. Are there any other kind of uh, essential things that we have to attend to?
1: I'm sure there are. Um, in, in the end of the novel, I have a big conference in Zurich where the novel is uh, centered, uh, where they have one day um, touting up the successes of the previous decade's efforts, and then another day to talk about outstanding problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that And that both lists could be endlessly extended. And it's one measure of the of the craziness of my novel, that I would even uh, attempt to write such scenes, because um, um, the totalizing effort can break the break the the brain. Um, uh, we one thing adequacy. Enough is as good as a feast, so we say we've got eight billion people. What do you want to make clear from the the what the ecologists and scientists in general are telling us is that the eight billion could be at enough enough and and enough is as good as a feast if it was well distributed and we all owned it equally. So eight billion now, um every year, the population goes up by like seventy five million. Um, It would be good if we were to get to a steady state. Women's rights do that. Mm-hmm. So we've seen this historically, demographically. It is a proven thing, and it's obvious on the face of it, where women have their full set of um, uh, political, legal, moral rights, education and empowerment, and they're just the same as men, the population rate levels. And it even begins to drop a bit, although... Um, what we can say for sure is that it levels off and, and begins a mild drop. I mean, the replacement rate is 2.2 or 2.1 uh, kids per woman on the planet. The, the global rate isn't much higher than that, but it is higher than that slightly. But it's in all the developed countries, wherever the more power women have, the lower that replacement rate is, sometimes down to 1.5, in which case the population's dropping. Not the worst thing that one could have happen. In other places, it's still quite high, and these are places where women don't have their rights. They aren't educated. They aren't given the rights that men are given. In those cultures, you see replacement rates that are up to three, four, five, and th- these places are the places where suffering's going to happen in the in the near future. And and one of the great solutions is just to um, help. The women of those countries who are already deeply interested in this project, uh, we, we can be sure of that, um, to, to increase their power as citizens. And, and, and uh, with everybody on planet practically having a, a smartphone and connected not by infrastructure so much as by information, everybody knows this situation already. Education is, is on the, uh, the edge of a flashpoint where you could say that everybody on this planet knows this stuff. And then it just has to be enacted and that's kind of a democratic push um, a push for people power and people power being women's power we could get to a state where the it it will never be a question of uh, uh, human welfare versus environmental or animal welfare they will be knitted together into one uh, package and your point is good if we don't succeed at this Humans might survive in some um, damaged, post-traumatic state. They won't be the same. It will be a dark ages if we go into a mass extinction event. If we don't succeed in these next couple decades, the futures afterwards are not so much dystopian as just plain ugly, as um, post-traumatic disaster dark ages that we would have to recover from. We would have the the few people that got through that bottleneck and then maybe begin to expand into a better, smarter civilization afterwards. would have to look back on the 21st century as a nightmare and the, the um, extinctions that happen won't be de-extincted. That's right. So you get back to a, a full ecology. After a mass extinction event, you, things will be okay. About 25 million years later, things will be okay on that front. So better to dodge that one.
0: Yeah, we we live in an age that's you know not any anywhere near a million much less 25 million years of history on the planet so a fraction of of that time yeah. would yeah. encapsulate all of of you know of humans existence on the planet and distant cousins you know one of the things that 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 um i've read recently is talking about you know if we if we're able to um move to lower than the replacement rate um Uh, for humans on the planet that quite possibly within a 100 year time frame, we actually break capitalism by that. Uh, Capitalism needs an ever expanding marketplace that are ever more hungry for more material goods and and uh, or, you know, you could even be even now we can say uh, soft material goods and entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, At a point where we stop doing replacement rate, we actually have over time fewer and fewer consumers and this is a really interesting analysis uh, for me, and and really points out this thing that the, uh, our dear Greta Thornberg said that you know like uh, you know a, 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 a infinite expansion is a fantasy, and you know, we can even begin to look at human population being a, a test of this this uh, notion that we can continue to expand and continue to have uh, a, ten, a continual growth. I think probably it'd be better to actually. Take on um, cultural and societal values of no longer continually expanding, no longer having as much stuff, as much space, as many new gadgets, as many new um, bits of information and, and entertainment. Um, I don't know how to talk about that. I think you, you think some of the ecoterrorism stuff like that put a put a, a stamp on it in your work. Um, you know, is there anything that comes to mind that we can begin to say, hey. Maybe the goal here is not to accumulate so much and not to experience so much, but to have maybe a, a slower, more deeper quality of life.
1: Well, that's a interesting a problematic, and I, I'm glad you brought it up. I don't like the term degrowth, yeah. um, although I know what it's gesturing towards, and it's even gesturing towards some necessary things. But let's say um, that the 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 notion of growth expansion should be translated to the level of quality rather than quantity. So you get away from commodification and reification, these classic um, uh, leftist terms for um, thinking that things can replace experiences. So a growth uh, experience is also don't need to be touristic or um, although that it can be interesting to see the world and you you don't want to be saying to young people well we lived large and now you have to be saints and and wear hair shirts and never go anywhere because we we blew it and right. i don't think it has to be that way if you do get into a steady state and then population begins to decline over time by natural desires of individuals making choices for their own families basically women in control of their lives then you begin to get a shrinking population then everybody's got a job then all the young people will be involved in taking care of the old who will be numerous and dying out of old age and and what you can talk about it there is growth of quality uh, of life for everything that if the animals are in good shape the wild animals if the biosphere were balanced if humans were on the planet maybe the um steady state biosphere health is best at a human population of I'm guessing here, 4 billion. And maybe over the next uh, couple of few centuries, we um, trend down to that and then realize the stress on the planet for um, dealing with our waste products and also the resources of bringing out new products will be lessened by that amount. We might have to deconstruct um, some of the... I don't know suburbios or the the least good of the built infrastructure, uh, deconstructing it and turning that back into nature and capturing carbon, blah blah. That might be part of the project of that time, and yet there would be this stress taken off of the biosphere if we had fewer humans. Now this is controversial, and I'm saying that this as a science fiction writer more than as a political citizen of my time, because it's very important I think to acknowledge that. Family size is a very individual decision that people need to be free to make, but that when women are free to make that decision, we tend to have smaller families and we tend to have a population going down. That is a disaster for your standard capitalism, which wants expanding markets, but capitalism is a disaster. The market is a disaster. And there, those aren't part of a, of a viable future they will morph into something that I just call post-capitalism. And for, and for people who are really enamored of the psychological drives behind capitalism, you just have growth of quality, quality of everything, more sophisticated and streamlined and um, uh, more enjoyable. The, the fossil-fueled growth, the commodity growth, that was all stupid to begin with. Uh, or no, not all stupid but it has a lot of stupidity built into it into to make profit margins. So a more stylish life might be um, um, a way to describe this better kind of growth, growth of quality.
0: Um, thank you for that. I, you know, I think certainly it, it's up to um, our time to begin to define as every good uh, philosopher of every age defined what is a good human life and what is a good collective life on the planet it it seems that we're due for uh, a collective conversation about that and to really consider again uh what it means i think the 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 evolution from uh those who are in authority maybe academics or philosophers having a say in what a good human life is to first um you know advertising uh, telling us what a good human life is till now influencers and in, in quick, you know, bursts on social media telling us what a good human life is, is a, a regression from a well considered point of view on that. I think that we could we would do well to spend a lot of time in our evenings around dining room tables uh, in novels like yours, uh, considering what is a good human life and how a good human life might uh, impact the planet and each other would be a, a, a well worthwhile conversation, a good starting point, we might say. Um, I wanna ask you one last question, just cause I'm dying to know, uh, cause it doesn't come up in, in uh, Ministry for the Future. Um, what about uh, uh, human life in and space? And, and where do you see that as, uh, you know, now, you know, obviously you've written about it a lot in your, your earlier work, but as, as we've come to this point in life, You know, are you still interested and excited about uh, human civilization off planet? um, Or has that been tempered somewhat?
1: Oh, it's been um, uh, stupendously tempered. Um, I one of the findings that relates to the uh, what we've been talking about earlier, 50 percent of the dna inside your body is not human dna Mm -hmm. this is a relatively new finding and it's a complete game changer um i don't think humans can prosper off earth over the long haul and so my novel aurora speaks to that directly um and i i like space science um um, nasa has a phrase space science is an earth science Mm -hmm. and we need to know everything possible we can about this planet because we're thrust unexpectedly into a a sort of a uh, stewardship situation where we need to take care of it and we don't know how. So in that process, space science is great, and it should be Earth-focused. The dream of the cosmicists um, that humanity is meant to spread through the stars, I think, was a fantasy and a miscalculation of the size of the universe and of what humans are. We co-evolved with this planet. Everything from its magnetic field to the composition of its atmosphere is ingrained in us, that we are embedded in it. So in my my novel 2312, I have the humans that are living elsewhere in the solar system, which is reachable, which the stars are not. Um, They have to come back every – they have a sabbatical. They come back to Earth, eat a little dirt, live on Earth. It's mysterious why they need it. They need it. To go back out into space if they want to. Might just be gravity. We're made for 1G. So then thinking about Mars, I mean, certainly my Mars trilogy is still my most famous work. It's 38% gravity, it's got much the same volatiles. Uh, one could imagine, still as a long term terraforming project, that if we had an earthly civilization where everything was humming along well, you could imagine Mars as a kind of a. Um, 10,000-year project to make it into a kind of a high Arctic, see if you could do that uh, as a low-stakes low, low stakes thing. Never be a second home. Never be a, a bolt hole. There will never be an extinction event on Earth where suddenly um, all the humans on Earth die and then there's 5,000 people on Mars that will make it through and recolonize Earth. That's a bad uh, science fiction story in that it can't happen. The real science fiction story would be We got things together so well on earth that we've got these Antarctic stations and that's how to conceptualize them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Right now, there's a station at the South Pole. There's a station at McMurdo. There's probably a dozen other little stations. They're little towns like mining towns, sort of. um, Not sustainable on their own. They're like space stations, except they're on the ice of Antarctica, which is very otherworldly place. I've been there twice and I'd like to go more. I love it so much. But those people, they come back to, they call it coming back to the world. They go back to the rest of the world, so they do some work down there. They fall in love with it. They might even spend their whole careers down there, but they live in the world, and that's where their families, their health, et cetera, are. Moon is going to be like that. Mars might be like that. The asteroids might be like that. You go out there. You study. You're a scientist or you're a support worker for the scientists, which means you could be anything, and maybe you're a poet sent on a program like I was sent to Antarctica, and then you go back to Earth. You go back to the world that's the way it's going to be and and all of these other fantasies and i say this as a science fiction writer i mean rated written about them um rated them as close as i can they are fantasies of escape they are transferences they are um ways of not thinking about the problems here on earth they are all kinds of things but they're not really good plans and they're not necessary space isn't necessary to us in the next century except as um scientific inquiry into the earth itself um, the resources out there are inatic, uh, are ridiculously uh, diffuse you can't make a profit out there which is why you're not seeing a viable moon colonies etc because it's never profitable in the usual capitalist way so this is my feeling about space right now and i had to go on at some length here because it's a little it needs articulation um, it's a complex picture it's not a simple no to space like I often hear on the left. It's not a simple yes to space like you hear from the, the space cadets. Um, it's in between, it's, a, it's an earth science that is useful right now and will always be attractive later on for people with growth fantasies or escape fantasies or humanity is destined for something greater than life on earth, which I find absurd, but it's a religious position. It's a replacement for um, a sense of immortality that if only humanity could go to the stars, then we'd all be immortal. Well, I, I, I don't suffer from that kind of religious urge, and I don't think it's realistic. But it's out there, and the solar system is quite a beautiful neighborhood. So you, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. The fact that we can't get to the stars does not make the solar system less beautiful and interesting.
0: Um, and that again, going back to our conversation about being part of the whole of the Earth, when you were speaking about you know all all of space sciences, Earth science, I just suddenly had this very very profound experience of you know we are Earthlings, we are of Earth and inseparable from it, and we are an expression of of you know some. Self-aware consciousness event, some uh, complex life form event that is is part of the entire biosphere. It is not a we're not a separate entity on top of the Earth. Mm-hmm. We are of the Earth. And and even your sensible explor- ideas about exploration of space would say we're still of the Earth. We're just a piece of the Earth that's now on Mars or a piece of the Earth that's now on the moon and that in order to be able to be intrinsically whole, we would have to return to, to the whole. Yes, um,
1: I would agree with that. I think that's right. And even my, luckily in my Mars novels, these young Martians that have never even been to earth, they come down, they get crushed by the gravity. They recognize that they are coming home. And so I have not been, uh, I'm not renouncing I don't have to renounce the earlier half of my career, Mm -hmm. but but um, but your 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 main point is absolutely crucial. We are bubbles of earth. This is a Flora Thompson, uh, Lark Rise in Candleford. It's a 19th century landscape writing, and uh, John Crowley, the great American science fiction writer, quoted it in his um, uh, wonderful novel Little Big. We are bubbles of earth, bubbles of earth, and Mm -hmm. as girls, these these Victorian girls would would uh, Um, gamble around the English countryside uh, saying that to each other as they bounced around like uh, like young lambs and it's a beautiful thing Crowley used it as an epigraph to his great novel and I I saw it there first and then went back to Flora Thompson Mm -hmm. Um, and and you've got to look at uh, lark rise in Candleford to um, to to see that this feeling is a maybe a Gaia feeling or whatever you want to call it this earth-centric feeling of connection with this planet is very common and indeed maybe that's what shamanism was always about Hmm. um that there are other worlds but we are uh, expressions of this world
0: yeah yeah great and i think um you know as we kind of wind up the conversation here this kind of leaves for me and i hope for our audience um a little bit of an altered state of consciousness that you know we we started this conversation talking about the future uh, for humanity and and a vision uh, that you stand stand has have helped us to have and to become part of, of the the body of society and we appreciate you for that. But kind of where we've arrived is back to ourselves. We've arrived back to um, that we are this extraordinary expression of life and an extraordinary expression of complexity. These amazing complex systems of. You know, co evolved uh, uh, species inside of one thing that we call a body um, and that that quite possibly um, the the biggest leap we could make to having a thriving future for humanity is actually just to be human is actually just to be earthlings um, and, and to, you know, kind of embody that very simple reality. I don't like to be too reductionist, but there is definitely in this moment, a a feeling of the poet in me being, uh, 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 you know, enlivened and and brought forth. Um, so thank you for that. I thank you for the, the, you know, that, as you called it, the technocratic look at at a very possible viable, uh, future for humanity. Um, in some cases, an architecture or roadmap, at least places for people to look If they're interested in in getting involved in inventing and creating new ways of doing things, you you paint a very, very complete picture of some of the most important things to focus on. And then to arrive here at this kind of uh, mythopoetic moment of um, uh, little bubbles of Earth uh, is uh, quite a satisfying experience. Thank you so much, Stan.
1: Well, thank you, Michael. I've really enjoyed it. Um, You have... um conducted my violin playing in interesting directions. And um, I really appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been a good conversation.
0: Great, and I look forward to having you back again to talk about specific things, especially as, you know, I think what we're starting to see is seeing through the lens of a viable future or a generative future uh, towards, uh, things that are occurring and happening, you know, as, as techno utopianism has a lens and a view of, of what certain advancement means. We have a, we have a, a digital magazine that, that we've launched called proof of the thriving future. And we, we as well are looking at ways to be a lens, to, to be able to see into these, um, into the events and current day in a way that helps us to get to gain access to having some sense of of capacity to affect change, some agency in the direction uh, and future of humanity. Um, and I think uh, you are uh, um, uh, definitely a forerunner of that style of human being and that style of human thinking. And, and we're really excited to continue the conversation over time.
1: Well, thank you. I would love to come back and I will be looking forward to the magazine. Um, yeah, it's a discursive battle, but it's also an imaginative project. And, uh, and I can see that we're, we're doing it together. This year is going to show us a whole lot about um, whether we can collectively shape a, a good future.
0: Well, thank you, Stan. And um, we will be speaking again. And uh, that's it for now for our viewers and listeners. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Boldly Now is an initiative of the Generative Futures Initiative, generating a thriving future for humanity.